The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Will America go back where it came from? Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, July 18th, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. Hateful Americans, racists, whether they admit it or not, have been shouting for decades, go back to Africa and go back to Mexico. In the 1840s, in fact, riots broke out across the country as bitter Americans lashed out at the immigrants they said had brought crime and poverty to the U.S., Germans and the Irish. They even had their own anti-immigration party, which they called the American Party. To everyone else and to the history books, it became called the Know-Nothing Party because it was so disconnected from reality. And that was in the days leading up to a civil war, which was all about racism. The years that followed brought lynchings and the Ku Klux Klan. Racism, whether we care to admit it or not, has been part of the American fabric since new arrivals from Europe began pushing Native American Indians out of the way. We've been hearing racist cries of go back to where you came from for a couple of centuries now. Most of us just aren't accustomed to hearing that sort of thing from a president of the United States. But this president saw a chance to pump up the racists among his supporters, and he saw a crack in the opposition, and he went straight for it. It was a Sunday morning like any other, except that migrants in nine cities were nervous ahead of an expected series of immigration raids. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had just minimized four of her own, four non-white female lawmakers who had dared to clash with her on that recent border aid package that also further finances Trump's cruel immigration policies. Pelosi said these duly elected representatives, quote, have their public whatever and their Twitter world, but they didn't have any following. They're four people, said Pelosi, adding, and that's how many votes they got. The Twitter world of just one of those female lawmakers has 4.7 million followers. And her response to Pelosi, defining whatever as public sentiment, immediately got over 65,000 likes and 10,000 retweets. Trump saw this clash, and he saw an opportunity to try to divide and conquer the Democratic Party, so he grabbed the Twitter machine to throw fuel on the fire. Donald Trump's parents both hailed from Western Europe, two of his wives from Eastern Europe, including our current First Lady. In his public life, however, Trump has claimed Obama was born in Africa, called Mexicans rapists, tried to impose a Muslim ban, and noted the very fine people at a white supremacist demonstration in Charlottesville. He said visitors from Africa would never, quote, go back to their huts, and that everyone in Haiti has AIDS. He said he prefers immigrants from Norway. This week, the president, who once referred to some of the world's nations as shithole countries, awoke on the Lord's Day to tell those four duly elected congresswomen to, quote, go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came. You can't leave fast enough, he tweeted. All but one of the women were born in the U.S., Detroit, Cincinnati, and New York. The fourth, a refugee from Somalia, has been a U.S. citizen for nearly 20 years, longer than the First Lady of the United States. The crime-infested places from which they came are here in the United States of America. All four have sworn their allegiance to the U.S. and have taken an oath to uphold the U.S. Constitution. What these four women also have in common, they're not white. Racism is a reaction born out of fear, which is born out of ignorance. But Trump also got coaching from the Fox News Channel's Tucker Carlson, who last week urged Somali-born U.S. Congresswoman Elon Omar to go back to Somalia. And because Trump has never let his lack of knowledge stand in the way of his feelings, he pounded out more than a dozen tweets Sunday morning to try to widen the crack he had spotted in congressional Democrats. He didn't mention the four Congresswomen by name, but he did invoke Pelosi's name, laying bare his true motive. But like so much of Trump's bloviating, it all backfired. Pelosi immediately rushed to the defense of the four minority lawmakers she had marginalized, attempting to repair the crack, at least when it comes to standing up to this president. Pelosi tweeted that Trump's plan to make America great again, quote, has always been about making America white again. Our diversity is our strength, wrote Pelosi, adding, and our unity 
is our power. In that moment, the result of Trump's effort was a more united Democratic caucus, not one more divided as he had hoped. House Democrats immediately passed a resolution to condemn Trump's racist tweets. Said Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan, who represents more Muslim Americans than any other member of the House, told reporters, I've been trying to figure out how to bring everybody together. I think the president just did that for us. Nobody in our caucus, she said, is going to tolerate that kind of hatred. The Republican caucus, however, is a different animal. Its silence was deafening. The Republican-held White House had no comment on the president's 13-part Twitter rant. A spokesman for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had no comment. Leading Republican lawmakers in the House didn't answer any emails asking for their views on what Trump had spewed. They're afraid. They've seen Trump's support continue in spite of all the racist things he said and done, and maybe because of them. They know that about 90% of Republican voters still support Trump in spite of or because of the outrageous things he says. Unless it's about John McCain. Congressional Republicans scold Trump sternly when he denigrates the late war hero turned statesman. With minorities, not so much. Trump said on Monday he's not concerned about getting support from white nationalists because, quote, many people agree with me. Even those Republicans most prone to publicly criticize Trump fell silent. Republicans hope to hold on to their Senate seats in 2020 so they will remain silent to avoid riling Trump and especially his voter base. And they will apparently maintain their silence no matter how vile he gets and go back to where you came from remarks are about as crude as racial slurs can get. Gone are the voices of Nikki Haley, Paul Ryan, Jeff Flake, Reince Priebus, and even Lindsey Graham, each of whom who speak freely when they knew Trump was in the wrong. Lindsey Graham, in fact, has turned from calling Trump, quote, a race-baiting xenophobic to a man who joined Trump's attack on these four minority congresswomen and went a step farther to falsely call them communist. A communist favors the complete shutdown of private enterprise in favor of complete government control. None of these four women have called for this. They just all happen to be non-white. Today's top elected Republicans have been careful not to condemn Trump's naked racism and the effect it will have in further empowering racism in the U.S. and possibly fostering violence because they have nothing to gain from it and the votes of Trump supporters to lose. They have reason to be afraid. At a mostly white Trump rally in North Carolina last night, the crowd chanted, send her back, at his mention of Minnesota Congresswoman Elon Omar, one of the four women he'd attacked in his racist tweets. This is not a rerun from 1939. Yes, Republicans are afraid to speak, no matter how crudely racist the president becomes. And saying nothing made it appear that they, perhaps, agree with him. America's white nationalists certainly agree with him. One of the Internet's busiest neo-Nazi websites is the Daily Stormer, which wrote, Man, President Trump's Twitter account has been pure fire lately. This might be the funniest thing he's ever tweeted. This is the kind of white nationalism we elected him for. It feels so good, end quote. On Monday, Trump was asked if he was concerned that white nationalists were supporting him because of his racist attack. It doesn't concern me, answered Trump, because many people agree with me. All I'm saying, they want to leave, they can leave. And then Trump turned his hateful words into deeds. Since the end of World War II, U.S. laws and international laws have required the granting of asylum to those fleeing persecution and or death. Jewish refugees had been turned away by the boatload, even here in the U.S. in World War II, but under these new laws, under this new American law, never again. Trump has called these laws ridiculous and insane. The Trump administration begs to differ when it comes to brown-skinned immigrants from El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. Under a new Trump administration rule that went into effect immediately, Asylum will no longer be granted to people coming here from those countries if, A, they crossed by land into the U.S. via our southern border, and B, if they did not apply for asylum in Mexico first and get denied. That means asylum also becomes more difficult for anyone seeking it at our southern border, brown-skinned Cubans, Africans, and Haitians. As if seeking asylum weren't difficult enough after the difficult journey here and the difficult circumstances that force people to make that journey, 
Trump made it next to impossible. He was, in fact, shutting down the granting of asylum contrary to our asylum laws because his own efforts at reducing immigration have consistently failed. Trump Attorney General William Barr gave no justification for the new rule other than to reduce the strain on the U.S. Border Patrol. This week, a court in Mexico blocked its president from being part of such a deal. The ACLU is challenging the new Trump administration rule in U.S. courts. For now, never mind, give us your tired, your poor. Instead, most of the people coming here for asylum are now being told, not here, not from us. Go back to where you came from. The Trump administration had spent over a year and a half trying to get a citizenship question added to the 2020 census. Once the true motive behind that effort was finally revealed through happenstance and through the loose lips of the president, it became a lost cause. Documents had surfaced clarifying that the motive for adding that question was to boost the gerrymandering already in place in many states to give Republicans much better odds in congressional races. And then even Trump clumsily admitted the census question was for districting. Combined with a Supreme Court ruling, that year-and-a-half effort was down the drain. So on to Plan B. Trump announced he had ordered various federal agencies that track undocumented people to agree on a number, a total. Administration officials said that they would subtract that number from the census count and take that number to court to argue that only citizens should count in determining congressional representation. In the end, Trump had avoided a constitutional crisis by not defying the Supreme Court. He had lost the war, but continued to fight. Fear of the immigration raids that began on Sunday in New York, that fear prompted families to cancel vacations and check before answering the door. Every time someone knocks, you get scared, said one immigrant. Fear was apparently the purpose of the announced raid, since Despite being threatened for weeks, it began without a whimper and not a bag. Trump, of course, disputes that, calling the raids very successful. Many, many, he said, were taken out on Sunday. You just didn't know about it. Down from Trump's estimate of millions, immigration authorities set out to arrest some 2,000 of our newest arrivals and their families, many of whom have already lived here for years. Even immigrants who would not be targets of the raid were worried, and maybe that was the whole idea. ICE agents knocked on doors in New York Sunday and made only a handful of arrests. Two raids were attempted in Chicago. One involved a mother and two daughters, who were later released, and one was at a home where no one would answer the door. And there were no known raids in the other seven cities that had supposedly been targeted. Since Trump had spilled the beans about the raid and its timing, immigration officials decided to take a more slow-roll approach, stretching out the raids over a week or so, extending the terror for a bit longer. They're going to take people out, and they're going to bring them back to the countries they came from, said the president. In the end, it looked a lot like the random raids of any other week, and not the mass sweep we were led to believe would occur. American taxpayers have, mostly without knowing it, been investing in private prison companies, getting rich from Trump's tough immigration policies. The tax money in question here is what we all pay into the pension funds of our public workers. And for the past two years, during the Trump presidency, at least 20 pension funds, including some of the biggest, have invested in two of our largest private prison operators, GeoGroup and or CoreCivic because they're making big money. The New York State Teachers Retirement System, the California Public Employees Retirement System, and retirement plans for workers in Oregon, as well as in Ohio, Alabama, Florida, Arizona, Tennessee, and Texas, each investing between 2 and $10 million. The stock value of private prison firms dropped by 30% toward the end of Obama's term, as his Justice Department declared he would no longer use them. That same stock has bounced back and then some since the swearing-in of Donald Trump. The big Wall Street banks have stopped investing in these ventures to keep the mess off their hands, but the investments are still strong from these public employee unions. 
In some cases, because the pension funds are managed by outside firms, even the unions didn't know where their money had been invested. Thanks to the journalist of The Guardian, now they do. Five years ago yesterday, New Yorker Eric Garner was on a sidewalk on Staten Island selling loose cigarettes. In just moments, he would be in a chokehold by a police officer. He would utter the words, I can't breathe, and then he would die. The video appears to show the officer using a chokehold that was banned by the NYPD more than 10 years ago. And then there were nationwide protests, people chanting, I can't breathe, demanding that this and other police brutality be punished. Local prosecutors say they investigated rigorously and could not find enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt a case against the officer. Prosecutors said they could not prove that the death was intentional. The officer's lawyers would have argued that the video wasn't clear in distinguishing a chokehold from what officers called a seatbelt hold. So, no local prosecution. There was, however, also a federal case accusing the officer of denying Mr. Garner his civil rights. The DOJ's Civil Rights Division wanted to pursue those charges, but the Justice Department announced Tuesday it would not pursue the case, that it will also file no charges against the officer whose arms held a dying Eric Garner. That decision came from the top from Trump Attorney General William Barr. Continuing to draw pay and benefits these past five years, that officer, Daniel Pantaleo, has been on desk duty without a badge or a gun. It is now exclusively up to New York Police Commissioner James P. O'Neill to decide whether Officer Pantaleo should be fired or just lose some vacation. Eric Garner still can't breathe. It was the Jeffrey Epstein scandal that brought down Trump Labor Secretary Alex Acosta, and then there were 13. Not counting the folks who'd served temporarily as acting cabinet members, more than a dozen people have now departed the Trump cabinet, about half of whom have resigned in scandal. There's former Health Secretary Tom Price, former VA Secretary David Shulkin, former Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke, former EPA Director Scott Pruitt, and now former Labor Secretary Alex Acosta. Now the Labor Department will have an acting administrator, too, under a president who promised the best people. More diplomatic communiques from Britain were leaked over the weekend, including the one that claims that Trump pulled out of the international nuclear deal with Iran simply to spite Barack Obama. The memo was written after British Brexit leader Boris Johnson visited the U.S. to urge Trump to stay in the deal. The memo from the same diplomat forced to resign over earlier leaked memos calling Trump inept reads, the administration is set upon an act of diplomatic vandalism. It was Obama's deal. British police continue to investigate the source of these leaks, but leaks in Britain are rarely prosecuted. The president throwing fuel on the flames of racism this week made for a powerful distraction from all his other troubles. Don't forget that. The Trump administration, meanwhile, has been quietly making a big part of the investigation into him go away. We just learned this week that federal prosecutors in New York suddenly stopped investigating Trump's business, known as the Trump Organization, back in January. That U.S. Attorney's Office in New York had requested interviews with executives of the Trump Organization but never followed up on them. Because between the time of those requested interviews and the time those interviews would have occurred, William Barr was confirmed as Attorney General. If you were counting on federal prosecutors to reveal the alleged money laundering and campaign finance violations, you can stop counting. William Barr, it appears, shut down that investigation into Trump's business well before he misled the public on the contents of the Mueller report. But this isn't over. Over the objections of William Barr's federal prosecutors, a judge has ordered the release of two dozen pages of redacted material from the Michael Cohen campaign finance case. In that case, the president, the Trump Organization, Donald Trump Jr., and others are implicated in the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Those payments can be considered unreported illegal contributions to the Trump campaign in that they protected the campaign from the claims of a porn star. 
despite the efforts of the president's people, those 24 unredacted pages of evidence about the money laundering and the campaign violations that sent Michael Cohen to prison also reveal more about individual one in that case, Donald J. Trump. Those transcripts are being released at the same time as this newscast. White House advisor Kellyanne Conway is the latest member of the administration to defy a congressional subpoena after failing to show as demanded on Monday, saying she, like the others, had been instructed by the president to disregard the subpoena. Conway now also faces contempt charges as the obstruction of the Trump administration to the constitutional powers of Congress continues. The House also voted last night to hold Attorney General William Barr and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross in criminal contempt of Congress for ignoring subpoenas about the failed attempt at adding that citizenship question to the census. These contempt citations would be forwarded to the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. for possible prosecution. That U.S. Attorney, of course, works for William Barr, and it's highly unlikely he will indict his boss on criminal charges. Democrats have a plan for that, such as it is. They've already authorized the Judiciary Committee to take this dispute to court. The House Oversight Committee is continuing its investigation into the census question, even without William Barr and Wilbur Ross. Last week at this time, we were convinced that this week at this time, we would be talking about something that now won't actually happen until next week. The good news for those hoping to hear from Special Counsel Robert Mueller is that they will hear more from him now. The bad news is, His testimony was delayed another week to this coming Wednesday, just two days before the House leaves for its six-week summer break, making it much less likely that Mueller's testimony will give fuel to the impeachment movement. That would take some heat off Nancy Pelosi, who continues to refuse to launch even an impeachment inquiry, which would serve as a power pill to congressional investigative authority. The other possible bad news that, on instructions from the White House, Mueller's deputies might not show up to testify as originally agreed. But instead of testifying for two hours for each of two House committees, Mueller will now testify for three hours before the Judiciary Committee and two hours for the Intelligence Committee, and all of it in a televised open session. The Mueller report outlines how, although the Trump 2016 campaign did not conspire with Russia to win the election, the campaign eagerly accepted Russia's help. The report goes on to outline at least 10 instances in which the president, as president, repeatedly obstructed justice, obstructed the investigation into the interference of a hostile foreign power into a U.S. election. When Mueller is forced to explain that clearly and in his own words, Many Americans and many in Congress will be hearing it for the very first time. But Speaker Pelosi almost did not get her wish to avoid impeachment or put it off. Texas Congressman Al Green, in response to Trump's latest racist remarks, filed articles of impeachment Tuesday night, charging Trump with disgracing his office with racist tweets and saying that Trump should be removed. If the House leadership had ignored those articles of impeachment, Congressman Green could have forced a vote as early as today or perhaps right after Mueller testifies next week. At the moment, more than 80 members of the House favor impeachment. But in a vote late yesterday afternoon, House lawmakers killed Green's impeachment resolution at the risk of angering a large segment of their voter base. Now, House Democrats will hear from Robert Mueller and go on vacation. If you have used the popular new Face app, watch your back. That's the advice from Salon.com's Bob Seska, who can tell us what today's racism news has to do with your face. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Donald Trump's series of endlessly racist attacks against members of Congress is just the latest episode in the decades-long history of Trump's instinctive disgust with anyone whose skin isn't his shade of Oompa Loompa. Let there be no doubt, Trump is a racist against non-white people, be they Latino, African, or miscellaneous, and he's not afraid to say it out loud in ways that never occurred to old-school Southern strategists like Lee Atwater and Pat Buchanan. And a racist president can't be allowed to govern, knowing his irrational bias against nearly one-fourth of American citizens. 
One of the reasons we're in this mess with an overtly racist president is directly due to the exploitation of our appetite for social media. That, according to many sources, including the Mueller report, Facebook, Twitter, and other platforms were carpet bombed with agitprop designed to stir up viral animosity against Hillary Clinton back in 2016. Through these platforms, American voters were directly targeted by firms like Cambridge Analytica, as well as the Russian Internet Research Agency, based on data we voluntarily provided, and which was both legally and illegally gathered and processed to help Trump and hurt the Democrats. Cutting to the chase, that face app thing everyone's downloading to see what they'll look like when they're old, well, we're doing it again. As if our profiles and personal details aren't ripe enough for the taking by the crooks at Facebook, we continue to make ourselves vulnerable to foreign interference as well as identity theft by voluntarily submitting to these online toys. It turns out FaceApp is manufactured by Wireless Lab, a company based in St. Petersburg. Not St. Petersburg, Florida, St. Petersburg, Russia. You know, the same city where the Mueller-indicted Internet Research Agency is based. That ought to be enough to keep this crapola far, far away from our phones and our personal data. But there's more. The Washington Post observed, The app uploads people's photos to the cloud of servers run by Amazon and Google, the company said, meaning deleting the app would likely make no difference on how the photos are used. In its privacy terms, the company said it can collect any of a user's uploaded photos as well as data on the user's visited websites and other information. The app's terms of service says users grant the company a, quote, perpetual, irrevocable, and worldwide license to use a user's photos, names, or likeness in practically any way they see fit. If a user deletes content from the app, FaceApp can still store it and use it, the terms say. FaceApp also says it can't guarantee your data or information is secure and that the company can share user information with other companies and third-party advertisers, which aren't disclosed in the privacy terms. Sure, but at least we can see what happens when decrepitude sets in. Seems totally worth it, doesn't it? Frankly, I don't care whether you've used this app already, but it was just a few months ago when we were outraged to learn this news. Last March, it emerged that a developer working on behalf of Cambridge Analytica, a controversial data firm that went on to work for Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, had collected data on tens of millions of American Facebook users without their explicit knowledge. The developer had used an online quiz app that connected to Facebook to gather the data. And yet we continue to play the quizzes and we continue to pump our faces into these apps, some of which might be on the level, though it's safe to assume, however, that our data is being weaponized against us. We're just handing it over. And when we're not handing it over, it's being stolen by Facebook. ZDNet's Ed Bot tweeted this question on Wednesday, quote, what if the Internet Research Agency in Russia is collecting all those face app pictures to use for avatars on troll accounts for the 2020 election, unquote? I don't think any of us are in a position to brush off that possibility. The Russians and surely an entire roster of copycats have discovered a way to undermine our democratic process by merely injecting targeted messages into our social media, knowing that our cultural obsession with augmenting our personal branding and building our audiences leaves us vulnerable to manipulation. Given the existential crisis we're confronting, with the president leading his disciples in chants of send them back Wednesday night, referring to deporting members of Congress who were mean to him, it's crucial that we do our part to self-regulate how we use social media. Stop sharing unsourced news. Stop sharing dubious memes. Stop handing over your personal information to disreputable Russian firms. Stop making it easier for our enemies to dictate who controls our government. It doesn't have to be this way. Before we take back the White House, we have no choice but to take back our digital footprints. Don't let history repeat itself. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon with Jody Hamilton and David Ferguson. After Bob takes some well-deserved time off next week, I'll continue joining Bob on his Tuesday shows. Facebook's lack of supervision over the access it had given Cambridge Analytica in the 2016 election campaign 
has just cost Facebook $5 billion. The Federal Trade Commission this week approved that number as a settlement after its 2018 investigation into how Facebook shares users' personal information for profit. The deal reached with Facebook to settle this case includes the chance for unprecedented government oversight of social media, but the settlement also ends the investigation, which is why the FTC's three Republicans voted for it, while its two Democrats voted against. The fine not only ends the investigation, that $5 billion is a drop in the bucket at Facebook. Still, the $5 billion punishment of Facebook is a record, the biggest penalty ever levied against a tech company for breaking a privacy promise. And Facebook is now required to tell users what happens to their data and how it is used, and Facebook has to face privacy checkups by outside groups for the next 20 years. Democrats say the settlement didn't go far enough, failing to hold Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg personally liable for privacy violations. Iran this week admitted it has now officially broken the six-nation nuclear deal that was abandoned by the Trump administration. Even long after the U.S. pulled out of that agreement, Iran continued to abide by it, remaining in the deal with the other countries. But after Trump turned up the sanctions on Iran and threatened other countries that do business with Iran, including our allies, the Iranian government demanded the European countries in the agreement help it find ways around those U.S. sanctions. Iran says Europe failed in that mission, so Iran has gone back to producing low-level plutonium. Iran says it will reverse course if those European countries can ease the pain of the U.S. sanctions, but Iran says it will step up nuclear production even more if Europe continues to fail to cancel out the U.S. sanctions. Iran is now producing power plant-grade uranium, not strong enough to be used as a nuclear weapon, which Iran claims it does not want. But Iran already has the equipment it needs. The strength of the uranium produced can easily be adjusted to weapons grade now that the Trump administration has pulled us out of that international agreement. And the administration has already gathered what it believes are the legal grounds for a military attack on Iran while Congress tries to insist it needs to advise and consent on such a decision. Meanwhile, back in North Korea, a warning that the North might resume its missile test and its nuclear tests. North Korea claims the U.S. and South Korea are jeopardizing nuclear talks by continuing their joint military exercises in the region. North Korea sees those exercises as rehearsals for an invasion. A month ago, both Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump were saying they had just once again exchanged beautiful and excellent letters. So there's that. We are still in the midst of the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. Unemployment is at record low levels and the stock market at record highs. The Federal Reserve had cautiously raised interest rates, optimistic that things were headed in the right direction. Consumer confidence is also riding high, but the consumers could be wrong. A Duke University survey of corporate chief financial officers found that about 7 in 10 of them expect a recession by the end of next year from Trump's protectionist trade policies. J.P. Morgan Chase puts the odds of a recession at 45% in the next 12 months. Those nerve-wracking odds are up by 20% since Trump launched his trade wars. Business investment is slowing down. This past month saw its biggest drop ever, as low as it was after the crash of 2008. The Trump-Publican tax cut has done little to increase investments or to give raises to workers. It's only grown the federal deficit by trillions of dollars. Businesses used the money they used to pay in taxes not to grow or to reward their put-upon workers, but to buy up their own stock. The trickle-down didn't trickle down again. Corporations did not, as Trump predicted, return their overseas investments to the U.S., the coal industry that was to have bounced back under Trump has shrunk another 13%. The steel industries shut down more blast furnaces instead of firing them up, as Trump had predicted. The Federal Reserve, criticized by Trump for being the economy's buzzkill, says it will not be raising interest rates anymore, just lowering them. 
Still this week, as he nervously eyes Election Day 2020, Trump again claims, quote, our economy has never, ever been stronger than it is today. This doesn't look like the best economy ever, says Summer Johnson of Douglasville, Georgia. She's one of 30 people unable to keep up with their bills who were interviewed by the Washington Post. They represent 40% of the country, the 40% that has to skip some bills or make partial payments when a medical crisis arrives or a refrigerator breaks down. A Federal Reserve study found that the average family in the U.S. still has not fully recovered from that 2008 economic meltdown that is universally blamed on the big Wall Street banks. Families lost their nest eggs, their cushion money, their savings accounts, and their emergency funds, assuming they had any of those things in the first place. From the most middle-income American on down, their wealth has actually shrunk. Sure, unemployment's at a record low, but a third of those jobs pay less than 15 bucks an hour, which doesn't leave much to put into savings. People have been forced to borrow more money to cover those emergencies. They've been forced to spend it paying off their college loans, mainly. Household debt in this country now totals $14 trillion, even worse than it was after the crash of 2008. July 9th was a very important day that, amid the other Trump chaos, went unduly unnoticed here and elsewhere. Today, we will give July 9th the attention it deserves because that was the day that a panel of federal appeals court judges in New Orleans indicated they were ready to strike down the entire Affordable Care Act as unconstitutional. This deserves not only our attention but our overwhelming concern that the overturning of the ACA by a federal court would leave 21 million people without health insurance and that 133 million Americans with pre-existing conditions would lose theirs. Preventive care would no longer be required and 25-year-olds could no longer be on their parents' policies. Companies could drop benefits and raise rates and deductibles. Hospitals would get less reimbursement. Pharmaceutical companies would once again lavish doctors with gifts. Medicare drug discounts would disappear. And believe it or not, restaurants would no longer have to include calorie counts on their menus. If the Affordable Care Act goes away, as it appears it will. As with everything else, an explanation is in order. The program derisively labeled Obamacare by Republicans was constitutional because it was a tax law and Congress has the absolute authority to write tax laws. The tax was the penalty that people paid for not having health insurance. That's what made everything else about this popular program legal. But Congress, after scores of attempts, finally dealt a death blow to Obamacare by removing the penalty, which removed the tax which, at least to the red states challenging the ACA, removes its constitutionality. And it was on Tuesday, July 9th, when those federal judges let it be known the Republicans may be right, legally speaking. Democrats argue that Republicans didn't eliminate the tax, didn't write it out of the law, that they simply lowered the tax amount to zero. But a federal district judge in Texas has already ruled that all of the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional, and this appeals court sounds inclined to agree. The Supreme Court has already upheld the constitutionality of the health care law twice. Stay tuned. Stay very closely tuned. Oh, and this very weird side note, even as the Trump administration is in court backing the effort to turn Obamacare to dust, It's using Obamacare to try to do some good. I know, weird, right? Last week, he discussed a policy his administration's developing to bring U.S. drug prices down significantly closer to those in other countries. And this week, he signed an executive order to make a huge and positive difference in the care we provide for people with kidney disease. And this is the weird part. Trump would not have been able to legally do either of those good things Without the Affordable Care Act, he's trying to dissolve. The day of which Republicans have dreamed, the day they have worked so hard for over a decade, has finally arrived. What they don't have, still, is a plan to replace the ACA or a health care plan of any kind. Because they handed the Trump administration climate change data it did not like, 
most of the government's top scientists are gone. The administration announced it was moving agriculture department researchers to Kansas City, even though most of them have family and roots in Washington, D.C., and did not want to go. The scientists also believed that banishing them to the lovely Kansas City area, they would be farther away from the seats of power in Washington, in effect, silencing them. The scientists were given until midnight Monday to tell the Trump administration what they had decided, and by that time, most of the scientists had resigned. It appears the administration wanted them to resign, not liking what it heard in those climate change reports. Some of the scientists plan to wait for the September 30th deadline to actually make the move to KC and then quit, hoping to find a new job in the meantime. Some plan to decide in early August before the new school year starts. Meanwhile, the administration apparently has no plans to replace the scientists who have quit. No more annoying researchers telling it about the damage being done to the planet. And they weren't just climate scientists. They did the research to determine the needs in everything from conservation to food stamps. One USDA sociologist says he has never seen morale this low in any job he has ever had. In a possibly related development, the Trump administration is moving the Bureau of Land Management's headquarters from Washington, D.C. to the other side of the Rocky Mountains to Grand Junction, Colorado. The move is to begin next May. Morale at that federal agency is also at a low. The administration is reportedly also looking to relocate the staffs of the U.S. Geological Survey and the Fish and Wildlife Survey. It isn't clear, and the administration hasn't said why the Trump administration is telling career civil servants in numerous departments to get out of town. One more note about climate change. New numbers from the National Bureau of Economic Research indicate that as the planet gets hotter, so will our tempers. The potential for worldwide conflict already exists as entire regions would be plunged into drought and fire and flood or flattened by wind. Drinking water would dry up, and so would the food supply, as crops perish. And there could be wars over food and water and livable land. We already know that tempers soar when the temperature does. The most homicides occur in July, the fewest in February. Other new research shows that terror attacks are more likely on warmer days as well. This new research found that violent crime spikes by nearly 6% on days that get above 85 Overall crime does not go up, just violent crime. Even a world temperature rise of one degree, it says, could push the violent death rate upward by double digits. Money for the health care of 9-11 first responders will again have to wait, and this time John Stewart cannot blame Mitch McConnell. McConnell had promised a vote in August, but a vote last night that required unanimous support to pass failed on one vote that of Republican Senator Rand Paul. Paul said he objects to raising the national debt to cover the care of these heroes, many of whom are dying from various cancers. As John Stewart pointed out, when it comes to Congress not wanting to drive up the debt, it's a little like Joey Chestnut eating 70 hot dogs and then not having a Coke because, quoting Stewart, he's, you know, watching the calories. 76 billion pills storming Area 51, and Chimp escapes Chinese Zoo in the final segment. Up next. I know why you're here. At such a crucial time in our history, you know the importance of honest, independent journalism and how important it is to support it. I'd be very grateful if you'd stop by my webpage, buzzburbank.com, and click that gold donate button, which helps cover expenses for research, equipment, and supplies. Your support is what helps keep this newscast going, keeping it independent and free for the listening. If you're able, you can do as others have done and schedule a regular monthly donation or just kick in something when you can or maybe if you just hear something you like. On your desktop browser, that gold donate button is on the upper right at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, that button is just above the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you for supporting this free and independent reporting through the PayPal donate button. Astronaut Buzz Aldrin was outside a Beverly Hills hotel in 2002 
when a man waving a Bible approached him, asking Aldrin to swear upon that Bible that he had walked on the moon. The astronaut responded to the conspiracy theorist in a language that required no interpretation. Astronaut Buzz Aldrin threw a right cross and decked the guy. As we celebrate the 50th anniversary of an American being the first to set foot on the moon, the conspiracy theory that we never went lives on. About 6% of Americans believe the government wasn't smart enough to put a person on the moon, but they believe the government was smart enough to fool everyone in a secret conspiracy that's lasted for decades without ever being exposed. Many of these people, 6% of our population, mind you, also believe that Princess Diana faked her death and that she was murdered. There is still a flat earth society, people who believe the earth is flat, it's how we got the anti-vaxxer movement. It's how we got the Obama birther movement. Conspiracy theorists give us doubts and false leads on the JFK assassination. They also love stories about Bigfoot. We can put a man on the moon, but we can't seem to stop the conspiracy theories. And that brings us to the thing that may or may not happen on September 20th in the Nevada desert at 3 o'clock in the morning. This thing is called Storm Area 51. They can't stop all of us. Well over one and a half million people have signed on to this event through its Facebook page. More than a million others have said they're interested in going. The U.S. Air Force is aware of all this and warning people that it would be dangerous for them to try to enter a military installation. Area 51 was established to test American spy planes in the 1950s, and it has done over the decades just that. But ever since those first spy plane tests in the 50s, rumors and speculation and some fakery have spread about the government hiding aliens or alien corpses and their spacecraft in this top-secret military installation. The small towns around Area 51 enjoy the tourism in small doses, but they're worried now about the calls already pouring in about accommodations for September 20th, the day they say they will finally get the truth when they storm Area 51. The Air Force is warning it also has helicopters and warplanes standing by. This is a joke, writes the organizer in a message that begins, Hello, U.S. government. This is a joke, he writes, and I do not actually intend to go ahead with this plan. I just thought it would be funny and get me some thumbsy-upsies on the Internet. He's gotten well over 100,000 thumbsy-upsies and over 1.5 million people saying they'll be there. This is a joke, says the organizer. The question is, do the people actually planning on going know that? Stay tuned. The United Nations World Health Organization has declared a new Ebola outbreak in the Congo to be an international health emergency. Well over 1,600 people have now died in the Democratic Republic of Congo in this latest outbreak, with about a dozen new cases being reported daily. The Director General of the WHO says there is no need yet to close borders or stop trade or travel, but he calls the outbreak a concerning geographic expansion. He says he has declared an emergency to get funding to help contain this latest Ebola outbreak. 76 billion pills of Oxycontin, Percocet, Percodan, and Vicodin. Americans were given 76 billion pills of these drugs in just a six-year period, 2006 through 2012. And that's just from the country's biggest drug companies according to a secret DEA database that's just been revealed in a lawsuit against Purdue Pharma and its retailers, accusing them of sparking America's opioid epidemic. Our top six drug companies distributed 75% of these pills through Walgreens, CVS, Walmart, McKesson, and others. The lawsuit accuses Purdue of knowing exactly how many of its pills ended up on the streets and did nothing about it, an apparent violation of federal law. The big drug companies have already paid more than a billion in fines to the FDA and the Justice Department and millions more to settle several lawsuits filed by various states. Walgreens still dispenses opioids but says it is an industry leader in combating the crisis. CVS 
vigorously denies any wrongdoing and says it will fight the lawsuit aggressively. Walmart and Purdue have no comment. Drug Lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman has been sentenced here in the U.S. to life plus 30 years. Guzman is blamed for hundreds of tons of drugs flowing into the U.S. from Mexico as one of the most notorious criminals of the past century. Blood was shed and lives were lost in Mexico as he smuggled more than $12 billion worth of drugs to the U.S. El Chapo is now likely to be sent to the country's toughest federal prison, the U.S. Penitentiary Maximum Facility in Florence, Colorado. Former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens left us this week at the age of 99. He was a Republican lawyer in his early days, but over the years he morphed into an outspoken liberal on the highest court in the land. When he retired at age 90 in 2010, he had been on the bench for 35 years. Over those three and a half decades, Stevens wrote and voted for gay and lesbian rights, minority rights, environmental regulations, and property rights. He championed the separations of powers between branches of government and the separation between church and state. He even championed the legal rights of prisoners at Guantanamo, a very unpopular stand in the George W. Bush administration. Stevens stopped the execution of death row inmates who are permanently mentally disabled. He voted in the minority in the Bush v. Gore case in which the Supreme Court majority gave the win to Bush. The justice who had begun his career as a conservative became a hero of liberals as he got older. He called his time on the court a learning process. Born in Chicago and forever a Cubs fan, Justice Stevens died peacefully this week in a hospital near his home in Florida at age 99, surrounded by his family. Video just released by NBC News appears to show Donald Trump chatting with Jeffrey Epstein and some NFL cheerleaders at Mar-a-Lago in 1992, Trump pointing at women and rating them. At one point, Trump appears to tell Epstein, look at her back there, she's hot. Trump says something else to Epstein we can't make out, and then Epstein doubles over with laughter. Other video taken that night shows Trump grabbing cheerleaders while they were dancing and patting one of them on the buttocks. Witnesses say later that night, Trump was throwing people into the pool and inviting the cheerleaders to spend the night. 1992 is the same year that Trump and Epstein threw a party at Mar-a-Lago with just the two of them and 28 women from a calendar girl contest. Exactly 10 years later, Trump told New York Magazine that Epstein's a lot of fun to be with and a terrific guy. But last week, Trump said, I knew him, like everybody in Palm Beach. I was not a fan. Federal prosecutors say they found cash, diamonds, and a phony foreign passport stashed in Epstein's safe at his mansion in Manhattan. Epstein is facing a bail hearing today. Yesterday in court, two of his accusers, who were minors when they say Epstein sexually assaulted them, testified to his face that he should not be released. Epstein, in blue jailhouse scrubs, is accused of recruiting underage girls for sex. And because he knows he may never see freedom again, today was Epstein's chance to lighten his sentence by naming others. Celebrities, perhaps. Maybe the guy who hosted the party with 28 calendar girls. Stay tuned. Singer R. Kelly appeared in court this week in an orange jumpsuit and shackles for a bail hearing. Prosecutors argued bail should be denied, and the judge agreed. The Grammy-winning singer pleaded not guilty in that same hearing to charges of sex crimes involving minors for decades. The feds are accusing Kelly of racketeering, kidnapping, and forced labor as well. As with Jeffrey Epstein, Kelly had recruiters, managers, bodyguards, drivers, and personal assistants to bring him underage girls for sex. The feds say often the sex was filmed and photographed, and they say the girls were instructed to call him daddy. Kelly remains behind bars, bail denied. All charges in Massachusetts, meanwhile, have been dropped against once-renowned actor Kevin Spacey. He was one of the few criminal prosecutions of the Me Too era. Spacey had been accused of groping an 18-year-old man at a bar three years ago, after news of deleted messages on the young man's phone, Spacey's accuser pleaded the Fifth Amendment, refusing to testify against Spacey or himself. Without the accuser's testimony, that criminal case against Kevin Spacey goes away. But investigations of multiple allegations against Spacey continue in London and Los Angeles, 
L.A. prosecutors say they'll make a decision in that case next week. Spider-Man Far From Home is again the top movie in the U.S. and Canadian theaters this week. This week it's taken in more than $45 million to add to its growing pile of cash. Toy Story 4, with great reviews and a big surprise, is again second with $21 million. The Beatles-inspired film Yesterday is fifth with about $7 million. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click your way through the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. The old record for Emmy nominations was held by NYPD Blue. In 1994, it got 26. This year, the final season of Game of Thrones left NYPD Blue in the dust with 32 nominations. Game of Thrones has already won thrice for Best Drama and will likely make it four this year. Its only solid competition in that category is NBC's This Is Us. Also nominated, but less likely to win, are Netflix's Ozark and AMC's Better Call Saul. It was what we once called pay TV that got the most nominations, 137 for HBO, 117 for Netflix series. Among the big snubs this year, Julia Roberts in Amazon Prime Video's Homecoming and producer Chuck Lorre, who got no love for his 12-year hit Big Bang Theory, or for his Netflix series, The Kaminsky Method. And Allison Janney, who stars in Laurie's CBS sitcom Mom, was also snubbed after seven Emmy wins before. Julia Louis-Dreyfus has been nominated for her seventh Emmy, meanwhile. Best comedy contenders include HBO's Veep and Barry, and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Schitt's Creek on Netflix. HBO's Chernobyl got 19 nominations, and the Netflix series Russian Doll also nominated for Emmys, along with, once again, Saturday Night Live. Netflix, meanwhile, has lost friends. And The Office. Now that NBC Universal's coming out with a Netflix-type app of its own, it took these two popular, long-running Thursday night sitcoms, Friends and The Office, away from Netflix. AT&T's HBO and Disney will soon have their own Netflix-type apps as well, and cord cutters will soon have to make some tough choices about which services deserve their subscription fees. Netflix is already losing subscribers, partly because of its recent price hike. The first quarter of this year handed Netflix its biggest drop in subscribers in eight years. 130,000 homes canceled their contracts after the price for the most popular package dumped from 11 to 13 bucks a month. The CEO admits it's the rate increase that drove most people away, and in spite of the 117 Emmy nominations, he says the shows on Netflix aren't good enough. A town in eastern Finland has just conducted a contest in which competitors show off their mad knitting skills while dancing wildly to heavy metal music. Kind of a Pearl Jam. Finland has more heavy metal bands per capita than any nation on earth. Quoting one of the judges, it's very dark in the wintertime, so we're a bit melancholic. This contest is the annual Heavy Metal Knitting World Championship. Heavy Metal Knitting. One of the bands performing this year, Nine Inch Needles. You will not be able to fill your own donut this year at the Minnesota State Fair, and it's probably for the best. Fair officials last month unveiled their list of foods that are new to the fair this year, including big donut holes you can fill yourself with Bavarian cream or chocolate custard or lingonberry jam. You would get a big donut hole and a little syringe to inject the sweet filling into the pastry. There are two reasons they have now decided not to let people inject their own goo. One... More plastic being used once and discarded. Two, in the midst of an opioid crisis that's hit Minnesota too, people objected to the prospect of seeing the fairgrounds littered with syringes. Capital of Vermont is Montpelier. And it was there that a visitor to the state house, the state capitol building, noticed weed in the flower beds. Weed singular, as in marijuana. Capitol Police rounded up nearly three dozen of these bushy little green plants, each under 10 inches in height, and they say state workers have apparently found more of them. The police are 
testing the plants to see if they are in fact marijuana plants or perhaps just some sprouts of hemp, which is legal to grow as a crop in that state. Possession of small amounts of recreational marijuana is legal in Vermont, but it is illegal to grow marijuana in a public place. And it doesn't get much more public than in front of the state capitol building. The chief of the Capitol Police had just gotten back from vacation. When the plants were discovered, he called it a humorous thing to come back to. In Georgia, a woman asked her local Dairy Queen to make a birthday cake for her 25-year-old daughter. Her Dairy Queen makes ice cream cakes, so she asked them to decorate the cake with the words, Happy 25th Birthday, Kensley. As for a theme, well, her adult daughter's favorite Disney cartoon is Moana. M-O-A-N-A, Moana. But when they picked up the beautiful cake, it was decorated with My Little Pony smoking a joint next to a big marijuana leaf, all beautifully drawn in green icing with a little red for the pony's eyes. We're from South Georgia, says the daughter. I think they thought she said marijuana. Quoting Kensley, we weren't mad about it or anything. We just thought it was funny, so we ate it anyway. If you're looking for the lingerie you ordered from Amazon, you can pick it up at Fire Station 2 in Menominee, Wisconsin. The Menominee Professional Firefighters Union has posted a photo of a lovely white corset it received that it had not ordered. The Amazon package was addressed to the city of Menominee at the fire station's address. There was no gift card inside and no receipt, just the lacy white lingerie. In posting a photo of the item on Facebook, the firefighters wrote, while we appreciate the gesture, we are unable to accept gratuities and it most likely will not fit any of our personnel. Picture, if you will, a tall cactus broken out of the ground and lodged horizontally through the front windshield of a sedan. It happened on Agave Drive in Tucson, Arizona. The driver was not injured by the saguaro cactus but was arrested on suspicion of driving under the influence at 9.30 in the morning. Your highway spills of the week. A whole lot of paper money flew out the back of an armored truck on I-285 around Atlanta. Other drivers pulled off the road and jumped out of their cars to scoop up the cash. Police say it isn't clear how much cash it rained that day, but with a lot of it still missing, citizens are being urged to do the right thing and turn it in. And police say they will use license plate numbers from traffic videos to track down the cash grabbers who don't come forward on their own. But no one bothered to help clean up the mess when a tractor-trailer spilled its load on the I-670 bypass around Kansas City, Missouri. Three lanes of the westbound interstate were covered in pig intestines and closed for an all-day cleanup. State highway crews used snow plows to clear the road of the pig guts. This week's animal stories begin with an escaped chimp at a Chinese zoo. The animal was captured with a tranquilizer dart after it pushed a zoo worker to the ground as it ran for the exit. A Houston man was part of a fishing competition. He just didn't know it. He didn't know his competition would be the snake that had sunk its teeth into and wrapped itself around the big fish the man had caught with a rod and reel. The man was able to separate the two creatures and, with only minor wounds to each animal, release them back into the wild. And another fish tale. On Lake Michigan, north of Waukegan, Illinois, a charter boat captain fishing with friends caught a trout that had a wedding ring attached to its tail with one of those nylon zip ties. Immediately, says Jim Nelligan, we thought, who would do that? It made the news, of course, and Jason Rose of Michigan saw it and came forward. He said he was the one who had attached the ring to the fish and set it free two months ago. He says he does not want it back. Four years went by since our divorce, says Jason. I'm convinced the ring is cursed, he said, adding, my life has been nothing less than great since I released it. The ring could be cursed, since its new owner says he's had nothing but trouble on his boat ever since he brought the ring aboard. For a whole week, People flocked to Chicago's Humboldt Park on the city's west side. Local animal control had been unable to catch up with the alligator that had been spotted there repeatedly, becoming a local celebrity with nicknames like Croc Obama, Frank Lloyd Bight, and Ruth Gator Ginsburg. The city's residents ultimately settled on Chance the Snapper, 
Until he can be shipped off to Florida, he'll remain under the care of Chicago Animal Control as officials remind citizens that alligators do not make good pets. Authorities in Michigan had just seized a pair of baby gators from a barber shop. But in Chicago, one week to the day after the five-foot gator's first sighting, a gator whisperer from Florida had come eye-to-eye with the reptile at 1.30 in the morning. It was gator catcher Frank Robb who's been to this rodeo many times. And he always tells the same joke when asked how he catches the gators. Just barely, he says. And finally, this week it's thank you, Oklahoma. It was in Guthrie, Oklahoma, that police at a traffic stop discovered what appeared to be a stolen car. Inside the car, they found Stephen Jennings, who now faces charges of possession of a stolen vehicle and driving without a license. But they also found inside the car an open bottle of Kentucky Deluxe whiskey, a loaded gun, a pet rattlesnake, and some uranium Jennings may have bought on Amazon. So there may be other charges. Your move, Florida. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support to the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.